Welcome to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of the uh, newsletter FinTech Takes and joining me as he always does, the creator of FinTech Business Weekly, a newsletter on FinTech that's even better than my own, the asker of tough questions, the reader of regulatory tea leaves, Jason Mikula. Jason, thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Great to uh, great to be here, and, and shortly, uh, you and I will be in the same city in person for New York City FinTech Week, including on on stage, or I assume there's a stage involved at uh, the <laughs> Empire FinTech Conference, which is Monday. No, excuse me, is Tuesday, uh, the nineteenth of April. Uh, and Alex and I are going to be talking about the future of consumer lending, including a grab bag of everyone's uh, favorite topics that are going to be impacting the lending landscape uh, in 2022 and beyond. Things like BNPL, the changing role of credit bureaus, uh, alternative data, income-based underwriting. We might even get crazy and talk macro, inflation, you know, interest rates, those, those things yeah. that no, one, no one's seen in my lifetime. Um, so that's going to be pretty exciting. But I think uh, today we have a good good slate of topics to talk about. We absolutely do. Yes. And as always, we have just sort of collected some of our favorite uh, topics and stories from the last month or so of FinTech News. Um, so we'll spend some time kind of hopping through those, talking about what they mean. As always, we'll end with a little can't let it go section for the stories that we're just sort of personally obsessed with. Um, but Jason, I know you had a, a big one to lead off with. So why don't you go first? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that apparently, you know, all fintech analysts now must also be Apple analysts, which is <laughs> it's a whole own ecosystem of stuff. Um, but it's increasingly, you know, pushing into the financial services landscape, which it has been doing in fits and starts, you know, for quite a while. Um, but really, there were kind of a, a pair of stories interrelated in recent weeks, uh, which we can sort of talk through our, our speculation on, yeah. on what's going on here. Um, you know, one, uh, Apple acquired a UK open banking, and I'm making air quotes, startup called Credit Kudos. And, and I put air quotes because, you know, all of the, or many of the headlines refer to it as an open banking startup. Um, and to be honest, I had not heard of this company when I drilled a little bit deeper looking through their website. And there was also some, some great conversation, you know, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, you know, it became clear that the company focuses more on analyzing bank account transaction data and using that as a type of uh, credit scoring model or to help lenders make recommendations. It's not actually the infrastructure to access bank account data. So it's not the plaid of the UK. Uh, it's more akin to the Prism data, uh, which is a kind of spinoff of Pedal, the cash flow underwriting-based credit card, it's more akin to that technology to make sense of your uh, checking account, or as they call it in the UK, current account data to make a sort of lending recommendation. So that's sort of big story number one. And it was followed about a week later by a piece in Bloomberg uh, that, that reported that Apple is looking to insource certain financial services capabilities uh, including specifically naming uh, pr card processing. And actually, the way it was worded in the story, it made a nod both to 
issuing processing. So basically serving, replacing core card, which Apple and Goldman Sachs use as part of the Apple credit card product, uh, as well as if I'm remembering correctly, making a nod to sort of merchant acquiring or basically Apple, you know, working to lower the fees it pays to third parties for processing transactions you know, whether it's at Apple Store or you know in uh, the App Store and so on. So a lot of, uh, I would say, kind of ambiguity in potential different directions that can go. But um, you know, I've rambled long enough. What what were your take takes on these sort of two big news items? Yeah, I mean, I thought they were very interesting, um, and it's interesting that they sort of came out somewhat close together. I mean, I think that. One of the things I've observed about Apple, um, just again, my amateur Apple fintech uh, analyst hat on, and I'm by no means an expert in all things Apple, but it does seem interesting that they don't make a ton of acquisitions relative to other companies their size, right? Like they do occasionally, but a lot of times they will partner. And in financial services, they've partnered a lot, as you know very well, um, to enable sort of the different products or financial services that they wanted to offer. And my sort of thought process on that was always that the, the partnering signaled that their intention in offering financial services was really built more around sort of making the iOS ecosystem a little stickier, right? So we're going to have pay, we're going to have credit card, we're going to have financing for buying Apple hardware. Um, you know, we're just, we're going to like build a little P2P functionality within so that, you know, uh, families can share money between uh, each other's, um, you know, iTunes accounts. So there's all of these little sort of add-on financial services features that they've built into their ecosystem. And I think if your intention as a company is just to sort of make iOS a little stickier, make it a better ecosystem and walled garden to operate within, and try to just sort of improve customer retention, that approach makes a lot of sense, right? Like you don't want to spend years trying to develop your own financial services infrastructure or products. You want to get to market quickly. You don't want to spend a lot of money up front. And so like the partnering route made a lot of sense. What has struck me lately with a few of Apple's different acquisitions, and there's the, the Credit Kudos one. There's one from a while back for um, an acquisition of a company, I think based in Canada, that was focused on um, point of sale, like accepting credit cards. And in both of those cases, I think what acquiring sort of that infrastructure means is that Apple is kind of going to the Bloomberg story, trying to take more ownership over the infrastructure and insource more of it. So we saw them acquire the company that helps with uh, contactless credit card acceptance. And then what, like a year later, after doing a lot of work to sort of integrate that technology, they it was reported that they're going to be rolling out a solution to allow merchants to accept credit cards in a way that's somewhat competitive with what you know someone like Square offers. And I sort of view the the credit kudos thing in a similar vein. I don't know that we'll see anything come out of that acquisition soon because I think they're going to be working on incorporating it deeply into their product and their ecosystem and their infrastructure. But when they roll it out, it's likely to be something that's more of a substantial product offering or something that's kind of more core to what they do as a business. And I think what that indicates is Apple shifting away from we want to add financial services to make our product a little stickier to we want to like make money in financial services. We want it to be its own revenue line. We want to care a lot about the unit economics of the products that we offer to your point about costs. And so I think it does mark from an Apple perspective, a really interesting shift from 
oh, we can make a ton of money on iPhones and these kind of core business areas and financial services is just this cute little add-on to, you know, actually financial services looks like a good revenue line by itself. And we want to diversify and get into that. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of that is, is, you know, is right. There are, there are only so many people who want to buy a thousand dollar iPhone. Frankly, I don't even want to buy a thousand dollar iPhone. Um, and, you know, for a, a while, and again, caveat, like I'm not a close Apple watcher, but I- you He's know, an I, expert, I, folks. He knows everything uh, that's going on at that uh, company. I, I, I read the press. I see the tweets, you know, particularly <laughs> with the transition to, to Tim Cook. You know, yep. it's been it's been a while since we've seen a really, you know, home run, uh, to use a sports metaphor, uh, product innovation from Apple. You know, you, they've had a couple, a couple of these smaller things, you know, AirPods, you know, which I'm wearing right now, um, AirTags, a couple of things like that, but nothing that was truly like a category defining product. And under Tim Cook, you have seen a very... Um, you know, relentless and well-oiled machine of increasing services revenue uh, and increasing margin, right? Just execute, execute, execute has been the name of the game. And so some of the pieces we've seen, you know, have been exactly what you're saying. How do you, how do you, you know, get more people to buy an iPhone, get people to upgrade more frequently? How do you drive more services revenue, which there have been a lot of things, um, you know, as far as like, bundling Apple's cloud with Apple TV and these other things. Um, but if the push here is, you know, they want to make a sort of new line item, as you put it, that really demonstrates this isn't just about, you know, 10 or 20 bips around around the margins. It's actually like a major new revenue driver. Then, yeah, they would need to start to assemble the pieces to do that. I mean, I think the, the piece that I'm the most curious about is would Apple start to make these capabilities available to third parties, right? So it's like, okay, this is interesting. You know, if Apple is going to do some sort of uh, credit scoring like function via credit kudos, is that so it can offer its own buy now, pay later capability? Or would it ever begin to bundle the underlying data points from Apple's uh, Apple users, you know, product usage and account history with credit kudos, you know, type open banking data, and then sell like an Apple score to a third party. You know, it it runs counter to what Apple's done to position itself as, you know, the good guy on privacy compared to, you know, big tech foes like Google and, and Facebook and Amazon. But you look at the pieces it's lining up and it's like, well, okay, maybe this is to make a privacy play in the sense if Apple owns your issuer processor and Apple's doing your credit scoring and you're getting a, your loan from Apple and it all stays within Apple ecosystem, like voila, this actually leans into the privacy play. But you know, there's potentially much more money to be made by almost becoming a, a you know a vendor to other entities within the financial services ecosystem and, and Apple actually. Um, you know, working to supply data or work as an issuer processor for other companies in the space. I don't think that's likely to happen, but if the goal is to drive, you know, a meaningful amount of new revenue, you have to wonder if that's something that's at least um, being discussed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, the, the, 
sort of other revenue line that jumps into my mind when thinking about Apple and getting deeper into financial services is everything they do in health, right? And kind of um, fitness and the Apple Watch and, you know, taking cardiograms of your heart and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it's, I think, a good parallel in a lot of ways because, you know, it runs into that similar sort of privacy versus sort of data insights uh, area, particularly in a, a highly regulated space where this data that they're dealing with is, you know, covered by a lot of existing regulations around data privacy and access to consumer data. And I've seen sort of speculation like, would, you know, uh, Apple ever become a uh, consumer reporting agency and kind of functionally a credit bureau? And I, I struggle to imagine, to your point, them wanting to take on that compliance burden. And so I do sort of see more of a sort of tiptoeing around that kind of in the same way that they're doing with health, where they don't necessarily want to wade deeply into HIPAA and all of the sort of regulations around uh, healthcare data, but they want to facilitate apps and experiences built on what they've enabled from a, a health standpoint. And I feel like in financial services, they're going to maybe try to take a somewhat similar tack where they don't get all the way into being a completely regulated infrastructure provider and they do sort of maintain their stance on privacy and consumer data, but they try to enable more infrastructure and more sort of third-party development around their ecosystem. So to your point, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they do that because on the one hand, it's a totally new area and one that I don't think they um, even now probably fully appreciate all the details around. I mean, you you have to work in credit and lending and, you know, the the credit bureau and credit reporting space for a long time before you understand just how sort of messy and tangled a web all of that is. But at the same time, to your point, they have a lot of the pieces necessary already to be a big player in that space. And there's a huge amount of money potentially to be made there, which might be attractive to them as they continue to diversify away from selling thousand dollar iPhones, which I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of I'm, I'm going to use this iPhone that I have until it, uh, literally no longer functions. So um, with that, let's jump to the next topic, which is um, actually a good segue from what we were just talking about, which is um, a report from, uh, I believe, NBC News that was discussing decision made by the three U.S. credit bureaus, so Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, uh, that they were going to remove nearly 70% of uh, debt after months-long research showing that roughly two-thirds of medical debt specifically results in either one-time or short-term medical expenses stemming from an acute medical need. So essentially, what the bureaus have announced that they're going to do is um, remove uh, paid medical debt from consumer credit reports. So if you've had a medical debt and then you've paid it off, they're just going to wipe that away from the credit reports entirely. And then They also announced that in the first half of 2023, so next year, uh, medical debts of less than $500 will not be added to consumer credit reports. And I guess the interesting thing to me about this story was that when I read the headline, like, oh, the bureaus are going to be sort of dropping medical debts. In my head, I, before kind of clicked into the story and read the details, I was kind of thinking, well, yeah, no, that makes sense, right? Like directionally, I think it fits with the credit bureaus responding to um, pressure from regulators and from consumer advocates that like, hey, you know, there's a lot of things that happen within the bureaus and within the credit files that are just not, you know, fair or not directly connected to what consumers are doing around credit. We've obviously heard a lot of discussion around 
you know, why are credit reports and credit scores used for things like car insurance, right? So like, maybe they're just sort of re-entrenching around, yeah, we're just going to focus on consumer credit. We're not going to look at anything that's not directly related to, to people's history of paying back credit obligations. And of course, it sort of would follow in the footsteps of changes that FICO made to the FICO score, I believe, starting with FICO 9, to disregard uh, certain types of medical collections as well, right? So it just sort of seemed directionally like, okay, we're just going to drop medical collection data entirely from uh, the credit reporting and credit scoring space. That was my assumption reading the story. And then I clicked into it and it seemed much more reading the story like, yes, they're making some small changes to what they do there, but they are still going to collect this data. Um, they are still going to use um, unpaid medical debts above a certain amount as a, a trade line item that gets included in you know, consumer scores. Obviously, newer FICO scores like FICO 9 are not in use uh, across the industry broadly. It's still largely FICO 8 and earlier versions of the score that take medical debt into consideration. And so I guess I came away having kind of read the story in a little more detail, a little underwhelmed or disappointed relative to kind of where I thought they were going. And I, I find it really interesting that, um, you know, we continue, I think, to see a struggle with credit scoring and credit reporting space between wanting to have access to a lot of data that potentially is somewhat predictive uh, to the, the things that uh, lenders are trying to, to predict, while at the same time, all of the, the institutions, FICO, the credit bureaus, are also trying to sort of make nods in the direction of like, no, we want to make this system fair, we want to modernize it. And, you know, while I thought that, you know, we talked about this on a previous podcast, the things they're doing around buy now, pay later and adding BNPL to the bureaus, that sort of seemed like a positive step in the direction of like, hey, this is credit activity that's not being captured, let's capture it. This to me seems more like they didn't quite go far enough in terms of doing this. And I, I know that the CFPB and others have definitely gotten into this topic before. And I think their position on it is fairly clear, which is that you know medical debts and medical collections uh, have a sort of undue impact on uh, minority communities and lower income consumers, and that it's not especially well correlated to uh, performance in the same way that like history of repaying credit obligations is. So I think the CFPB would have preferred they went further, but I don't know. What did you think when you saw this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the timing was interesting in that it followed, you know, fairly closely. I think within like a month or six weeks of the CFPB releasing a report on medical debt, yeah. uh, which found that you know some staggering percent of American households had, um, you know, medical debt in collections on on their credit report, um, and that that. You know, CFPB report also uh, referenced, um, you know, the same point you just made, which is there's an argument to be made um, that these data points are not necessarily always predictive of people's uh, willingness to pay. And if you just sort of pause and think about like, okay, how, you know, how might somebody get a bill, you know, from a doctor or a hospital that ends up in collections and then gets reported to the bureau, you, know, you might be you know, upper income, wealthy, et cetera, but have some dispute with your insurance company over you know, a treatment. And you know, if that bill doesn't get paid within you know, X timeframe, you know, the hospital or whatever, whatever provider 
could end up referring it for collections. Now, I know a number of years back, some of those windows were lengthened, I think, yep. to like six months to sort of account for this you know, insurance latency. Um, but, it, you know, I would argue that it, it's there's a fundamental difference between you know, applying for a credit card or applying for a loan and then defaulting on that obligation versus, you know, your kid breaks his arm, your wife has cancer, you know, you need this expensive treatment or diagnostic or whatever. These are in most cases, you know, not, not uh, voluntary obligations that somebody is taking on. Right. Um, uh, You know, not, not to mention the entire sort of, um, you know, universe of how those impacts fall along uh, employment income racial and geographic lines that, that you reference, right? Who's least likely to have either insurance or adequate insurance? Um, you know, so I think that, that you know, you're right that the, the specific move by bureaus in this case is like a good start. And, and, you know, based on the timing, it probably wasn't a direct response to the Bureau report because you and I both know how long it would take <laughs> to, to move that through Equifax, yeah. Experian, and TransUnion. So I don't yep. think they did that in four weeks. Um, uh, but yeah, a little uh, a little lackluster, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I think all of that's a really, really good point. And, you know, I mean, it's to your point about sort of the difference between medical and other types of um, sort of unpaid obligations. I mean, I think one of the things we need to grapple with as an industry around this discussion on credit reporting and credit scoring, and a lot of times I find the the discussion goes a bit too far from a consumer advocacy perspective. Like there are legitimate things that you have to do, right? Like you have to report negative data when people don't pay credit obligations. If you don't do that, then you don't get good data in the ecosystem and lenders can't make good decisions. And like, we want a safe, sound lending ecosystem. That's really important. So I I definitely am not, you know, abolish the credit bureaus or they don't do things that are good. But I do think we need to sort of grapple with a question, which is there's a difference between things that are technically predictive and things that are fair. Right. And I think we need to grapple with that because, you know, while you can use machine learning algorithms to find all kinds of things that are correlated and that are predictive, we sort of have a contract in the United States, at least, which says that um, from a consumer perspective, we're going to tell you which things are going to impact your ability to get credit. You are going to have the ability to see the factors that contributed to you either getting credit or not. You'll have the ability to dispute any inaccuracies that you feel there. And ultimately, we'll tell you what you did wrong so that you can work on improving those things so that the next time around, you have a better shot at getting access to credit. When it comes to voluntary obligations of taking on credit cards or loans or other things, all of that, I think, is totally fair game. And I think consumers understand that. Um, the medical piece to your point is not the same thing. It's not the same type of obligation. You don't, you know, break your arm and go, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay this back. And so I think I'll just go home and have a broken arm. Like that's just not the way our system works. That's not the way those expenses work. And so sort of tagging that as the same type of willingness to pay signal, I think fundamentally just doesn't seem fair, even if there is some predictive power to it. So I think that's something we need to sort of wrestle with. And I think the other sort of macro lens to this topic is there are certain parts of our society and our economy that are just kind of out of whack with like the rest of 
our economy and sort of the lives that we're leading, the two that jump out to me are healthcare, which is outrageously expensive, as we all know and have experienced. And the billing practices and the way that hospitals sort of interact with insurance companies, as you were describing, like all of that is messed up in a pretty fundamental way. And then the other one to me is um, student lending and the cost of higher education, right? And it's just exploded over recent decades. And so I think we also have to have this sort of macro lens on some of these topics where if costs and availability are spiraling out of control relative to the sort of fundamental needs that consumers have, I think we need to take that into consideration when we're looking at how do people's performance in those areas impact their access to services moving forward, right? I don't necessarily know that we should be treating student loan debt and repayment quite the same way that we do others. Because again, in a similar way to medical, you absolutely have to have it, I think, to kind of thrive in today's knowledge-based economy. So it really is very critically important. And B, the costs have sort of exploded around it. So I, I feel like this is the beginning of a broader conversation around what's fair, what makes sense, and sort of how should we be treating some of these larger macro issues in our economy that might impact consumers this way? No, I mean, I think last last comment on that, but I mean, you know, zooming way out, you know, the <laughs> the uh, argument I always make, you know, about sort of the state of middle-class consumers in the U.S. is the cost of three things has rapidly increased, medical care, housing, and education. You know, that has led to an explosion in... Uh, use of and types of financing for these things. You know, I'm sure there's BNPL for fixing that broken arm um, or, or some, know, some I variation. For, I know that for a fact. There are buy now, pay later providers that are specifically focused on medical expenses. Yeah. Um, and in a really terrible pun, you know, the financing is a band aid on some of these problems. Um, <laughs> but if the underlying, you know, sort of uh, systemic macroeconomic problems aren't addressed, which is really more of a government legislator regulator question, not a, not a, you know not a necessarily a private industry question. Um, you know, you're going to continue to see these points of friction. I guess is how I would put it. Absolutely no. I think that's I think that's really well put, and um, kind of is a, a good reminder that we need to not only have regulatory attention around the outcomes of these things, but regulatory and legislative attention on the sort of source of some of these problems. I, I could not agree more. Um, let's do at least one more. I know you have a topic that um, you sort of feel like is not getting nearly enough discussion in the industry. So bring it to the fore, put it on the on the front boiler. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, anyone who comes from a lending background will be very, very familiar with uh, the concepts of fair lending and ECOA, um, uh, which prohibit discriminating on the basis of a protected class. You know, you can't incorporate things like, you know, gender or age into a credit model, for instance. Um, but the CFPB made a pretty interesting expansion of its authority to sort of regulate or punish uh, financial services companies for discrimination, not just under ECOA, which, which is an authority it, it's had since it was created, but under UDAP, um, which is uh, their ability to regulate unfair, deceptive, and abusive practices. Uh, and last month, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the CFPB said it would use its UDAP authority to root out discrimination in all consumer financial segments. So not just credit products, but also uh, think, you know, wallets, um, P2P payments apps, you know, bank accounts or, you know, uh, synthetic bank accounts. So neobanks like, uh, you know, Chime, Vero and whatnot. So if you pause, you know, th that might sound like simple or maybe like not that big of a deal, uh, but if you pause and think about the number of models, algorithms that are used, uh, you know, across the financial services space, you know, which potentially may directly use some of these variables, perhaps even unintentionally, uh, as far as how they, you know, optimize or operate. This could include things like collections, like who to call at what time. Um, or even, and it specifically says this in uh, in the American Banker piece covering it, you know, even third-party advertising targeting algorithms. So, you know, if you're using, um, you know, ad services from, you know, Google or Facebook or other third parties that, that have uh, automation in them, you may be doing this and not even know it. Um, and so I think, you know, it's it's something that has the potential to have some pretty significant impacts. Um, that, you know, uh, I haven't seen a ton of discussion of publicly, but uh, maybe everyone is quietly freaking out behind closed doors about, you know, how do they go about standing up a, uh, you know, control and compliance function to sort of audit uh, and manage some of the risk tied to some of these other algorithms that they may be using. Uh, what did you what did you think about it? Well, it's amazing. I I missed it entirely. So thank you, first of all, for for surfacing it for me. And I agree, it hasn't gotten nearly enough discussion. But as you just sort of described it, the thing it made me think about is again, kind of from a lending background. One thing that people who worked in lending know is that um, all of the algorithms and processes and models and scores that you use to make decisions about lending all have to go through that uh, ECOA equal credit. Uh, access lens, right? And so it's it's a very burdensome from a, a end provider standpoint process to go through, right? Because it doesn't just look at like, oh, was your intent to discriminate? It looks at the outcome of the lending algorithm that you're using. And to your point, like, is there something going on in your machine learning that is, you know, without your knowledge or intent, producing this disparate outcome for one of these protected classes at the back end? And so lenders for a long time, even as they've slowly embraced more AI and machine learning and more alternative data, they always run it through a very, very careful process to look at all of that because, you know, uh, regulators for a long time have just been really, really, really hyper-focused on that type of discrimination through these lending processes. And I think kind of what you're describing that is very eye-opening to me is suddenly that rigor that lending compliance folks go through for any type of new innovation that you're doing around, hey, we think we can do a better job sourcing potential applicants for this credit product or evaluating them from a fraud perspective or from a risk perspective or you know, doing collections on them later, like any of those things that relate to credit that they've had to really carefully like, whoa, 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 like let's slow down and be careful because it might have an impact on uh, you know, ECOA. Like that to me, that like rigor that does not exist outside of lending within financial services. And particularly when you expand it beyond banks to include, you know, fintech companies, neo banks. Uh, I know that the CFPB is sort of now taking more of an interest from a consumer protection standpoint on crypto companies. All of these other uh, players in the ecosystem 
you know, I think from a regulatory perspective have probably looked at it and go, well, we don't do lending. So we're fine on that stuff, right? Like, obviously we don't want to do anything super bad that's going to draw people's attention. But like, generally speaking, if we stay away from lending, we'll, we won't have that same level of kind of uh, overhead in terms of making sure that all the clever ways we run our business are also compliant from a equal access to credit standpoint. I mean, from what it sounds like in the reading of this, after you shared it with me, that's no longer a safe assumption, right? And I, I, I guess the question I have for you is, I think you're better suited to answer this than I am, like what is going to be the uh, the impact of this on how people move forward? I mean, to your point, maybe there are people who are sort of quietly losing their minds behind the scenes and we just haven't seen or heard that yet. Um, but I, I also sort of wonder if it's one of those things where, okay, now technically the CFPB has announced that this now falls under UDAP and they're going to look at it. But maybe we need a few sort of examples of how they're going to come down on this before before we really know exactly what the the new guidelines look like. Well, what are your thoughts there? Well, that is uh, a really interesting point. The way that this was introduced, and, and I'm starting to sound like a like a government uh, like process nerd here, but it was introduced by updating the UDAP examination manual. So they just kind of said like, we have this authority. And it, I, it, with the implication being they've kind of always had this authority and they're going to start right. looking for this when they do a supervisory exam, which yeah. if you've never had to go through one of those, like count your, your lucky stars. <laughs> um, they did not introduce this through a rulemaking procedure, which rulemaking procedures, um, which is how you sort of take uh, you know law and turn it into regulatory policy, can potentially you know take years. The payday rule uh, is finally going into effect this June. And it was first, <laughs> uh, I think it was first floated like maybe close to 10 years ago at this point. Um, so I think yeah. that, the you know, that is interesting and potentially opens the Bureau up to legal challenges. So you can imagine a scenario where, you know, they come after uh, some company with an enforcement action under this UDAP authority uh, and then, you know, company pushes back and says, you know, this isn't even a valid authority that you have. I, you know, I challenge this. So, you know, I think that it's probably something that takes a while to see sort of, you know, will, if this is challenged, do the courts confirm that CFPB actually has this authority under existing statutes? Yeah. Um, and then if if it does, what kinds of enforcement actions does CFPB pursue? And the industry, by the way, hates that. They hate, you know, regulation or policymaking by enforcement because they right. kind of have to look at like what cases happened, you know, how big were the fines and right, then right. sort of Where triangulate. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> and then triangulate sort of how they're going to respond because to your point, you know, right. I've I've been sort of tangentially involved in some of those ECOA fair lending processes at lenders and they are extremely time consuming, extremely resource intensive from compliance, from legal, and often outside counsel or outside specialty consultants as well as a sort of you know second or third line of defense. And can you imagine having to do that for every fraud model, every you know direct mail targeting advertising <laughs> model? Like yeah. it, it, no one, I, I can imagine a reluctance to do that until people sort of have a better understanding of, of the um, the, the perimeter of this. Right. Absolutely. And I, just to put a, a final point on that, I think, you know, the way you described how the CFPB sort of utilizes their authority is a really good point because, 
you know, there's rulemaking, which I think, you know, the industry generally prefers because it draws very kind of clear lines around what you're allowed to do and what you're not. It takes time. People comment on it. There's a whole process. Then there's sort of uh, enforcement, which is, I think, kind of like the next layer in, which is, hey, you know, we're not really going to tell you what the rules are, but like, oh, that was bad. That was bad. That was bad. That was bad. So sort of draw your own line around that and probably bring in expensive outside compliance uh, folks to help you sort of figure out exactly where that line is. Um, the third one, though, that I've seen them leveraging more and overdraft, I think, is a good example of this is almost sort of more of an even soft power approach, which is like regulation by blog post, right? So it's like they'll do these public comments or these blog posts where they'll write about like, hey, just FYI, overdraft is really bad. And here are all of the banks with the best overdraft policies and the banks with the worst ones and like putting like their names on these things. And it's, it's not enforcement, obviously. It's not uh, official rulemaking, but it has this sort of soft power element of trying to sort of coerce the types of things that they're wanting to see. And so I, I do wonder if the first sort of shots in this are going to be, you know, hey, we looked into this and we don't love this. And here's kind of publicly why we think this is bad. And just trying to sort of nudge people over into slightly better areas because you know, to your point, they have a lot of different tools in the toolbox. And now that they've expanded their authority in this direction, uh, it, it, I think we're going to see a lot more activity and a lot more sort of public commentary around that. Name, uh, name and shame. Very powerful. Very, very, it always has been. It always has been. Um, so we're going to end as we always do with a quick, uh, can't let it go uh, section of a couple news stories that um, are tangentially related to uh, the ecosystem that we all uh, spend our time studying that we're fascinated by or just wanted to kind of comment on because it's just sort of stuck in our brains. Jason, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, I will uh, keep mine pretty fast. Pun intended. Um, yeah. So oh fast. my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, that wasn't even, that wasn't even a good one. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, fast for those of you who who don't know and have somehow missed the uh, the news story is a one click or was a one click checkout company which had raised something like a hundred and twenty four million in equity in just a couple of years. Uh, most yep. recently, from including uh, Stripe. Uh, and that was in January of 2021 at a nearly almost $600 million valuation. Uh, and, you know, as of a couple of days ago, uh, closed its doors with one uh, anonymous employee telling protocol, uh, basically, they didn't plan well and ran out of money. Um, yeah. And, you know, the stats I saw were something like $10 million a month in burn, mostly on payroll. Uh, while they brought in something like $600,000 in revenue in 2021. Um, A little bit of a mismatch there between those two. (laughs) I mean, I'm reluctant to read too much into this. I mean, I've I've sort of uh, talked to some folks across the ecosystem, and it sounds like there were like a lot of aggressive spending and uh, expansion plans that sort of were not anchored in the reality of the business, which I think those metrics uh, sort of, you know, validate. Uh, and then the question is, you know, is there any lesson here about, um, you know, go forward other sort of unprofitable or uh, fintechs that are struggling to grow revenue? You know, is there limitation on their ability to raise additional funds? Like I said, single data point, reluctant to read too much into it, um, but per- perhaps a cautionary tale for for anyone out there at a, at a company that is spending millions and millions of dollars but has no revenue. So that's that's what I can't let go yeah. of this month. <laughs> no, it's a it's a good story to to talk about, and I mean, obviously, 
you hate to see any company kind of go out of business. And I, I know there are a ton of very talented people who were working it fast. And I think they're getting very aggressively courted by others in the ecosystem. So clearly they spend a lot of money acquiring very talented people. But I, I think your your larger point about what this means for the ecosystem is a really good one because, you know, up until very recently, um, it did sort of seem like, I think, to people running these companies that if you had the right pedigree and you had the right sort of uh, look and feel in the industry that the checkbooks were open and there really wasn't going to be a stop to the money coming in and you could spend to grow and you could spend to grow well in advance of sort of the metrics and the performance of your business to date. And I, I do wonder if this has sort of a chilling effect, not necessarily in a bad way, maybe in a positive way, around companies getting too far ahead of themselves in terms of spending and trying to be a little bit more conservative in how they grow, how they expand, how they sort of manage their burn rate, because it is a pretty fast and furious sort of uh, go until you hit this wall and stop. And it, even with all the reporting that had come out recently about fast, I was surprised at how quickly it just wound down, right? And so I feel like that is probably a lesson that's going to ripple through the ecosystem. And, you know, obviously uh, we wish the best for everyone who was at fast and was affected and uh, sure they'll, they'll land in, in good spots. So um, that I think is a good one. Mine is um, another one that is kind of a, a maybe warning sign for the industry or maybe not, who knows, um, which is uh, Axie Infinity, the uh, wonderful um, crypto play to earn uh, video game where you sort of steer little, blob-like creatures around and fight each other, um, built on uh, the blockchain, built on a sort of side chain off of Ethereum. Um, they recently disclosed that they had had a smart contract exploit that drained something like $625 million uh, from the, the system. Um, I found this interesting from a couple different perspectives. Um, one is that... Uh, the makers of Axie Infinity have sort of likened the game to a nation with a real economy. That's a that's a quote that they've used to sort of describe their their game that they built before. Sort of hinting at the idea that like the sort of in-game economics uh, and tokens sort of built into it facilitated sort of real economic access. And there were definitely people, usually in sort of poorer countries around the world, who were using this game to either make a living or to supplement their income. And I guess the two things about that that strike me as I just kind of can't let it go. One is if you're a nation with a real economy, um, getting you know $600 million worth of your gold reserves robbed from your central bank because you forgot to lock the bank door, which is functionally what happened uh, with this smart contract exploit, that's not a real good sign for like a healthy, well-managed economy. So A, that I think is something that we need to sort of grapple with within the larger play to earn conversation and and crypto more generally is these these smart contracts are you know very much just these large bug bounties where if someone discovers a way to exploit it the money is gone and it's kind of interesting in that they know exactly where the money is sitting they can identify the specific wallet but there's no recourse for getting the money back out so they've said that they're going to refund the the ecosystem for the money that was lost perhaps getting more money from investors but that's a tough thing to be able to do and then the second thing, I, I just have to read this quote about like the future of this is the economy. This comes from Matt Levine at Bloomberg, who writes a, a wonderful daily column on all things financial services. And he said, this was a while ago before the hack, but I think it's relevant. Doesn't it feel like the dystopian future we deserve? 
Like in a decade, everyone will make their living by steering colorful blob-like creatures around to acquire coins in a virtual world, but ownership of the colorful blob-like virtual creatures will be concentrated among a hereditary elite of people who bought Dogecoin in 2014, and in order to scrape together enough to live on, you'll need to indenture yourself to a member of that elite, steering their blob-like virtual creature around to earn coins for them and getting a few crumbs for yourself. And you'll work 16-hour days in the smooth love potions mines just to feed your children. But every once in a while, in a rare free moment, you will stop and ask yourself, wait, why do our overlords care about these smooth love potions anyway? That, to me, is a perfect encapsulation of the rhetoric that sort of gets away from these things, talking about it as a real economy and the future of work, like that is the dystopian future that we may deserve, but it also is terrifying to me. And I, I, I can't let this story go until we talk play to earn gaming into the ground because it is a wild, wild future we're headed towards. Yeah, I mean, the even setting aside the, the hack and there, so there's plenty of interesting things to dig into there, namely that, <clears throat> they were only running something like nine validators and five of them were compromised, which allowed <laughs> right. uh, the hackers to loot, you know, 625 million worth of Ethereum and USDC. Um, I thought this was supposed to be decentralized, but uh, so setting that aside, <laughs> I mean, the, the play to earn component, you know, I've, I've read uh, some analysis on it uh, and it's basically in this game in particular, anyway, you know, it is self-consciously, a pyramid scheme. Yes. Even the creators, the creators of the game, basically a pyramid scheme as a marketing tactic. And they know they need to rebalance their economy by bringing in more people who are willing to spend money, not just yes. the people who are looking to earn money. Because if everybody comes in in the Philippines and Brazil, et cetera, anticipating that they're going to make a living on this, I mean, you have like a 4X balance of, of payments problem, right? Because every, you know, right. they're coming into the game, right. you know, and then they're earning this currency and taking it out, presumably to, you know, pay their rent and their real life expenses. And so, you know, un unless you have enough people in the in-game economy who are actually <clears throat> net contributors and not net, uh, you know, taking money out, you're, you're going to end up with a, you know, a broken pyramid scheme in, in eventually. So, yeah, I yeah, think that's... Like uh, why Why do our overlords want all these smooth love potions anyway, right? Like that's the core question. And it's the thing I always, I, and I, I, I take some small amount of credit for having asked these questions about this a while ago, even before they've sort of hit this rough patch. But it's like, you look at the, the process and it's like, okay, all of this is contingent on people who have money and don't want to toil in the sort of lower levels of the game, wanting to spend their way immediately at the top. And I, I guess the thing that I just struggle with so hard is, Gaming is a fleeting industry, right? Like there are hits and then they go away and then they're replaced by new hits. And so, you know, it's a popular game right now and it has been, and there are players who want to play it and spend money in there. But I just don't know that you can assume that's going to be true because it's never been true in the history of video games ever, you know? And so that's the part where the real economy thing starts to break down for me. So anyway, we won't belabor the point anymore. Fascinating company to just continue to study and observe from a distance. Um, Jason, thank you as always for taking the time. Uh, we will be back at again this uh, in another month or maybe earlier if there's really interesting news we have to talk about. But um, thank you for taking the time and uh, have a good rest of your day. Talk to you guys soon. Bye.